how do I work this thing? Oh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. What's up, everybody? <laughs> Welcome. We are live a little bit early today. So if you're one of the half a dozen or no, dozen or so people that are in the waiting room, thank you. Thank you for being a part of our community. So good to see you guys here. Uh, say what's up in the chat. We got it up on the screen. We've got Mr. Vaughn Turner today. What up? And Walker Reynolds. Dang, your studio looks great. It does. Do you have any exciting updates for us today, Walker? What, what are we going to talk about today? What are we What are we going to talk about in today's weekly live industry 4.0 stream? Well, we're going to talk about EMQX. We're going to talk about MQTT. I'm going to answer a bunch of questions. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about some new developments with the studio here. So you guys can't see it all, but. All the soundproofing's gone up. You might be able to see soundproofing over here. Let me take a look. Uh, you can see it's up on the wall. So all the way around the studio, that's up. Um, hey, we've, we've purchased a couple of vibe boards. So we're going to be doing our whiteboards on a vibe board. So Zach and I can collaborate from the studio here back to Salt Lake. Um, we had an awesome meeting with the folks from EMQ today. Um, so... We have a, a lot of a lot of cool stuff going on. How's everybody doing? Um, there's a, the the Discord's been blowing up. I haven't really had a chance to answer. There was a couple of questions in there. I definitely have to answer. Mm -hmm. I just haven't had a chance to get in there and 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 get the answers. But the advantage of having of building a community is I don't have to answer all those questions. Right. Yeah, so. Shout out to Dave Schultz. Had a couple of good. There was one I was going to actually pin and flag for today's Q and A. A question that came into our discord but dave schultz the uh the prototype answered it for us so thank you dave we're doing uh the the live stream with reveal is that next week right vaughn uh yes and when are we what day is that actually it's this week it's the first tomorrow oh we're doing it this week so uh so tomorrow and actually we won't be doing live what well, here's what we're gonna do i think we agreed Correct. Where Ravil and I are going to do a, you know, a podcast together. Sure. We will edit it for the way we normally edit everything to make it. Actually, generally, we don't edit podcasts unless there's something we said during the podcast that was confidential or something. We need to cut it out. Um, mm -hmm. But we will. And then we agreed that we would post the whole conversation. So there sure. will be it'll basically get posted twice. Once with all the production stuff in it, post the post stuff done, and then once in its entirety. Uh, and that's happening tomorrow. Yes. Um, next week, yeah. next week, we will be doing a community spotlight, a company spotlight on EMQX. Um, so, and that'll be a live stream. And so, um, and what is the difference between a company spotlight and a community spotlight? So in a in a community spotlight, we're spotlighting for 15 minutes a a person who's a member of the community, an individual, right? And it's how did you get here? What do you do? Yada yada yada. Mm -hmm. The you know you know why are you a member of the community? That kind of thing. A company spotlight is the full hour, and it gives us a chance the community to ask the company any question, right? So give feedback on their product, ask, you know, and so there's obviously some questions that I'm going to ask EMQX 
Uh, I'm going to ask Jalen. So it's going to be Jalen and I think Stone and one other guy will be on there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to be able to we're going to ask them questions about their product, um, business strategy. You know, there's for those of you guys that don't. So EMQX is the sponsor for the month of August. We've already shot all the video. We've shot all the videos where they're the sponsor, right, Zach? Yeah, all four. And they've all been released or? Yeah, they've all been yes. edited, published, and released. Yep. Right. So you guys already saw that where I said, hey, thank you, EMQX. A couple of things. When I said, <laughs> and thank you to Cheryl McCurry for pointing this out yesterday. When you guys may notice that I'm doing, um, you know, I'll say like, thank you to EMQX, mm-hmm. the enterprise broker for sponsoring this video. That was never meant to be published. <laughs> the re- Zach made the decision after the fact, hey, I, let's do that because, you know, I, that was just a warm up for me. It wasn't never meant to be me sponsoring the product. It was we were going to do a voiceover at the end. All I was going to say was thank you to EMQX for sponsoring this video. That's it. I did a warm up two times, <laughs> once in a blue sweatshirt or once in a blue jacket, once in a green jacket, where my warm up at the very beginning, we were doing the sound check. And it was EMQX. Zach at the end decided, <laughs> let's go ahead and use it. So you'll notice when I'm saying thank you to EMQX, I sound almost like I'm. I sound tongue in cheek. It's because I was doing a warm up. We decided to to publish it, but yeah, it everything very, it was very candid, right? But everything <laughs> that I said about the broker were my words. They were that there. There's no as it relates to the sponsorship. There's no quid pro. They don't give us any language. We don't allow that. There was so, no. There was no script. Right. No script. No anything. That's all right off the uh, the top of my head. So, but um, today I'm going to go over a couple things about EMQ. I'm going to highlight a couple things about EMQX that I think are pretty amazing, um, and I want to highlight. I want to draw a comparison to why I'm a big fan of EMQX. And then um, and then uh, next week, we'll be doing the company spotlight. One of the questions that we're going to be asking them is, hey, guys from EMQX, how do you overcome the objection that EMQ ha- is is a Chinese company, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to be asking that question. So they're, you know, EMQ started in China. Um, and, you know, in the United, obviously everybody knows that there's like this, you know, there's, you know, Huawei is one of the best, um, cell phone manufacturers in the world and they, they're not even allowed to sell in the United States because they're Chinese and Xiaomi, you know, most Americans don't know that Xiaomi X I A O M I is one of the best consumer products companies on the planet. They make basically everything, but they don't sell in the United States openly like they don't you have to if you want to get a Xiaomi product in the US you're getting it externally right mm-hmm. and the reason why is they're afraid to come here and then have the gov- US government say we're not going to sell you you know we're not going to let you sell here i mean never mind they sell everywhere else including the united kingdom germany <laughs> france there's no there's no one in the eu saying Xiaomi can't come here or Huawei so uh one of the but one of the challenges we have here in the US is you know, when it comes to, you know, as it comes to EMQX, their broker, it is beyond debate. It is the best enterprise broker on the market in terms of performance, um, in terms of capabilities, in terms of where it fits in the overall ecosystem, in their own ecosystem. It's beyond debate. I mean, you can prove empirically that if you're going to use an enterprise broker, it's the best one out there right now. Okay. Part mm-hmm. of the reason I I preached it is because I did the benchmarking myself. I didn't even know Jalen. I didn't know that I didn't know their company at all. In fact, their broker came to me through one of my engineers. Matt was like, "Hey, 
Walker, have you looked at EMQX? This was like a year and a half ago or whatever. And I said, no. And I went and benchmarked it. I'm like, holy fuck. It's like 40% faster. And it, it literally outperforms the next best performing broker on the market, which is HiveMQ, by almost 40%. Then next, but directly below that's VernMQ, right? So, I mean, I've done all the benchmarking myself. And if you guys want to know what's after that, it's CirrusLink, and then it's Mosquito, and then it's Ignition's distributor, if you do it in order, right? I I, I looked at EMQ and was like, I mean, it fucking blows everyone away. Now, I, 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 I understand now a little better why it does. And it really has to do with the way that they approach developing the product. So when Jalen reached out to us and said, hey, would you be interested in letting us sponsor the community? I said, absolutely. He had, and, and it had to do with the fact that he takes, you know, Jalen takes the same approach we do to solving problems. I'm going to highlight that here in a second. Um, so let me, so before I get into the questions, so I got, I think eight questions I'm going to answer today. I want to I want to go over this. I want to demonstrate this EMQ thing real quick. And this isn't part of the sponsorship. This is unsponsored. This is me demonstrating. I'm actually answering a question. The actual sponsorship ends today. So um, I but I want to demonstrate something. You know, why? Why is this EMQ? Why is EMQ just one thing that makes EMQX awesome? Number one. You know, they recognize because they're a Chinese company, they've got the trust issues in the United States. All of their products at their core are open source. So the core products are all open source. So whether that's Broker Edge, whether it's their streaming um, technology, you know, I don't want to get into all the stuff that they they create, but they, they're basically creating an IIoT ecosystem. But at its core, everything is open source. Why? Because they want to build trust. A, they want to use the community to help develop. But secondly, they want to build trust. So, um, th- so that's number one. Number two, it's the approach that they take to development. Okay. And so here is something I see that I don't think the average person sees. Okay. So let me share my screen. And, and, and to answer the question, you know, hey, why, Walker, do you even care about this? All right. So um, I've got my broker um, running here. So I've got EMQ at you. Zach, you can see my screen, right? Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Yeah. So I, I've got, <clears throat> I've got my broker running on a server in the cloud, okay? Wait, no, um, we can just see your, we see the wrong screen. We see the, the your watch, where you see the YouTube stream. Right. We saw the YouTube analytics. Uh, okay, there we go, sorry guys. No, All right. <clears throat> so I've got a broker, I've got a broker running in the cloud. Can you see the broker now, Zach? There we go. All right, so I've got a broker. This is the same EMQX broker that we used last week to uh, do the PLC Next live stream. We did a four-hour live stream, and I basically walked through this whole process, right? Um, all right, I, I want to show you something. So in, in in every broker, you have a dollar sign sys namespace, okay? Um, and that is basically where you publish all your context, okay? that That's the broker context that you're publishing. Okay. Um, you're going to see things like um, the description, what version of the broker you're running, current uptime. This one's been running for four days, current date time. And then you're going to see statistics, which generally the statistics are the same across every broker, right? How many subscription sessions, et cetera, et cetera. The things that will change though, are what you see in metrics. Okay. So 
a broker, the a, a more open broker is going to have more stuff in metrics than um, than another broker. Okay, if I compare like a mosquito broker to, you're going to see some different stuff. Okay, mm-hmm. first off, what EMQ does, what EMQ does with the EMQX broker, is instead of instead of building a database backend, and then they have a software layer between their database backend. And you know, and and their UI, and they use the software layer in between the UI and the database backend to basically the way you would normally build the dashboard. This dashboard right here is the dashboard for their broker. Okay, and what I'm looking at is the monitor tab for their broker. Okay, generally, what I'm going to be viewing on this screen, the way that you build this, is I have code running. You know, maybe it's in Python and that code is basically looping through and I'm at and I and I have a I'm using a web package, a web development package to to build this. OK, and there's many of them. OK, there's many different web development packages. And what I may do is run a specific query that goes to my database that retrieves this result set. And then I use my web development package to visualize it using the CSS that I want to visualize. That is not what EMQX is doing here. What you are seeing on the screen, on the monitor screen, is our visualizations of the topic namespace in Sys. Okay. Now, this is a technical, you guys asked for more technical details. I'm going to give it to you. Okay. They... They do this on a level no other broker does. And what that tells me when I look at this is the people who built the broker and the people who built this front end build the same types of projects that we build. They understand the development strategy that we use to build solutions, to create self-aware systems. And here's the beauty. Because they did that, okay, so what I've got here is this visualization here. I've got all my metrics, et cetera, et cetera. Because they took that approach, what I could do is I could add information. I could add data and information into this metrics topic namespace inside of Sys. I could do that, okay, if I change my ACLs and give myself permission to be able to publish into Sys, which I can do, right? I can. I have the ability to do that with EMQX. The way that they built this, if I structure the data correctly and they built this web front end correctly, if I add something, it will show up. It, it can show up on this page. It, I, it can become self-aware just by providing the data in the application, the way that they built this. Now, I don't know if I add something there, if it's going to show up, if, they're, if they've written a self-aware application. But what I know is because it's open source, I know that I can I can create that. Because they're consuming, the values they're putting on the screen are coming from the topic namespace. They are not running through a select statement that goes to the back end, okay? So you mean the front end is a direct MQTT client and not using API database to get the data. Correct, Mario. What I'm saying is, is at a minimum, and I haven't looked at the source code, but what I'm saying is at a minimum, this monitor tab is an MQTT client that is pulling the data from the sys namespace and not through an API database call, okay? Why does that matter? And the answer is this. 
If you're using an API database call, that's deterministic. I have to physically write the select statement that's going to retrieve the specific data I want to visualize. If I, if I use an MQTT client that monitors a topic namespace, certain areas of the namespace, then just by virtue, I can write my code. I can write my do my web development so that if, if new data exists in that namespace, if I add a new topic under metrics, which would be, you know, whatever, it could be, um, say the metrics are, you know, users, right, users and in there, users per hour, I could visualize that on the screen dynamically, okay, by the, the way that they approach this. Now, this is something I see, this is something that I see when I look at products. I look at how they develop things. So when you look at how, you know, my excitement for EMQX, a lot of it has to do, it's not just the technology they used, but a lot of it has to do with the people who build this, get it, get it, right? They're not using an old development approach, okay? Anyway, I wanted to highlight that. Anyone right? who sponsors, you can pretty much guarantee that they get it, right? We vet our sponsors very, very Correct. Look rigorously. At, if you look at EasyVPN, right? EasyVPN is the sponsor for this month, right, Zach? In upcoming in September, yes. Right. They're the September sponsor, EasyVPN. Why did we allow EasyVPN to sponsor? Well, it's not because they make a VPN. That's not the reason. You guys may not know this, but EasyVPN is building a Linux distribution for industry. And it's called Easy iOS or whatever it is. Or IO, Hub, it? IO Hub OS. IO Hub OS. They're, why am I excited about EasyVPN? Because they're, they're writing a fucking Linux distro just for industry for all of us to use. That, that's on the, and, yeah, and that's on IO, the and IO Hub is their tool. IO Hub is their IoT platform. That you instantiate within that di that IO that uh, Linux distribution, and it's free. <laughs> it has nothing to do with the V. I mean, the VPN's cool. Don't get me wrong, but no. it's they get it because they're doing that. I know they get it, which is why we're talking about that with the rest Next of the community, month, yeah. right? That's why we're talking about. It. So anyway, I wanted to make sure I highlighted that point. You know, I I believe in EMQX a thousand percent, and and um. Yes, Mr. Momontos, we're going to cover that distro, that distro next month. In fact, we will have um, the guys from EasyVPN, Paulo, and and um, who, the simplest way they explained it. Have them on. Yep. Was like if you're familiar with Docker and Docker mm -hmm. Hub, think of IO Hub as the Docker Hub for industry. Right. We're going to be using IO Hub to Dockerize our industry 4.0 applications. Right. Correct. But yeah. Wait, Dolly, Dolly, D-A-L-I, says he per, he or she prefers Ewan to handle VPN. I hope to God you're shitting me. <laughs> I, I know. What do he, you like about it? You got to be kidding me. There's no way he prefers Ewan. The Ewan VPN, I mean, that's like saying I prefer to go to the grocery store in my Ford Pinto. <laughs> There's no way you you mean that. And I don't mean to I'm not trying to be rude. You that's somebody trolling us. There's no way that's true. Um Ewan makes trash VPNs. I mean trash. <laughs> they were great 20 years ago when there was no other industrial VPN 
German class. Oh, okay, got it. Awesome. He's fucking with us. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dolly. You're fucking, sure. you had me scared there for a second. Like, what? You're shitting me. <laughs> um, all right. So, and sorry for the language. I got to stop swearing so much. Um, all right. So I wanted to go over that. PLC Next workshop last week. Um, we got a lot of great feedback. If you guys are in mentorship and you haven't had a chance to watch that video, it, it it's a great video to go through and watch. I, I didn't prep for it. So I did the... The OPCU integration I tested, but the MQTT I didn't. And there was a couple of issues we ran into, two of them, which were debug issues. One was related to a, a controller version, and the second one was related to I was using a deprecated library. And you get you get to watch me labor through that, fix it, and then connect to the... And in fact, we connect to this broker here. And in fact, somebody, whoever was in Toledo, is still still publishing um, to, our, to our broker namespace. So if you didn't get a chance... And you are in mentorship. Make sure you watch that video. Um, I'm going to skip over. No, I'm not. Um, so the, all the sponsors that we've had up to this point, Phoenix Contact has sponsored the community. That That's why we did the PLC Next thing. Uh, they That wasn't part of the sponsorship. That was us doing it. This month, EMQX, so the videos, OPC, part one and two, um, Easy VPN next month, and then Canary will be in um, October. Um a couple of industry updates. So frameworks 9.2, uh, Dave hasn't sent me the final, Hey, it's in production yet, but I expect to get that this week. The Canary Roadshow, which was supposed to be in Chicago, um, September 13, 14 and 15 has been postponed due to COVID that, um, we found out last week, but Nepper asked me to hold off on, um, that was Dave Schultz, no longer in Toledo. Um, Dave, uh, Jeff asked me to hold off so he could notify everybody. But if you haven't been notified, the because of COVID, um, you know, Chicago, they implemented some rules in Cook County. Um, they, they can't do it in Chicago. So it's been postponed. All right. Let's get any any questions you guys want me to answer before um, I get into the Q&A piece. Hey, I do want to say something. Um, so last week, you know, we were talking about Chris. Chris's last name. <laughs> and yes. how to pronounce it. So Gile. he reached out. It, it's July. Yeah. He reached out on discord. Gile, yeah. he, <laughs> it's the, all he had to say was that it was the French pronunciation. And <laughs> I'm like, damn dude for eight years. Um, so, all right. Uh, let me go here. So I want to start with um, from this, this last video, what is MQTT part two? I want to do a clarification. Okay. Um, so Page on Adventures asked the question, hey, Walker, you mentioned in this video around seven minutes in that MQTT5 is backwards compatible with 3.1.1, but the EMQ website is saying it's not. Um, could they be referring to something else? So I need to clarify here, all right? Remember, my videos are for the layperson. So I'm not, the, 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 the videos that we put on YouTube are for the layperson. The stuff that we do in mentorship and mastermind is are the technical discussions. All right. So what's important to note here is for the layperson, it's backwards compatible. Okay. Not for a developer. All right. So I definitely do say this wrong in the video, and we're and I'm we're gonna pull it out. We're gonna have I'm gonna have Zach clip that piece out. And I'll correct it so that there isn't any confusion. But this is really important. I mean to say it this way. MQTT5 builds on MQTT3, okay? It's not a rebuild of the spec. It's an extension with new features, okay? 
So brokers, it's important for you to note that a broker is not specification aware, okay? Um, and many of the existing brokers have implemented many elements of five already, and, and most of you don't even know it, okay? While MQTT5 isn't backwards compatible for developers, that is, if I developed something to meet the 311 spec, that doesn't, it, that doesn't mean that if I develop something for five, five will be able to consume 311. It'll be able to consume most of it, right? But it will seem like it for consumers. And I'm going to explain why here in a second. Well, Ignition was a 311 client and we were publishing into the EMQX broker, which is five. So, which, right, that's what we're talking about, right? So here's some important points. MQTT5 has some, like, um, some a, a couple of optional features in it, like, um, you know, metadata you can put in the header, that kind of stuff. Like those are things that you're not always going to have to do with a client. You may you may choose not to do that. If you don't do that, okay. If you don't if if you don't do that, and it and it's not and you're not using it, then you won't notice that I'm running that I'm using a three one one broker talking to a MQTT five uh, uh, broker. But here's something really important to note. Um. What what the bro what the people who make brokers are doing is just adding in the five support. One broker, so Mosquito is a really good example. If you want, you can go to version two of Mosquito. Okay, this broker implements MQTT protocol versions five, three one one, and three one. Okay, one broker, all three specs. So I don't know like like the average the lay user doesn't know whether my client is a 311 user. That is, it's not sending um, metadata in the header or I'm not allowing, like if I, a 311 client isn't going to allow you to disconnect the, or close a TCP session, right? Only a five will, will allow the server to, to do that. <laughs> so the brokers themselves, all they're doing is adding in the MQTT5 support on top of the existing 3.1 and 3.1.1 support. They're basically just expanding the libraries. That's what they're doing, okay? So for the user, it's backwards compatible. The, the consumer is never going to know the difference as, all the, as the brokers become MQTT5 compliant. Developers know the difference, okay? That is the developers who build MQTT tools from scratch, not using a platform, okay? And very important to note. If you want to know... More details, I'll share this in here. This is from 2018, okay? But this is a good slide deck. Um, Dominic Obermeyer, um, he's the one who did this presentation. There's a video accompanying a video with it, but it's got 47 slides that basically explain, you know, why did they make the decisions that they made for MQTT5, et cetera, et cetera. What are the differences? I'm going to go ahead and drop this in the, the thread. Um, if you want to know more, go ahead and just review this slide deck. But while I do say MQTT5 is backwards compatible with 3.1.1 and 3.1, what I'm saying is in practice, it will fe it feels that way. Like if I, as long as I upgrade to Mosquito 2, I don't know, I won't know the difference in any way, shape or form. I'm not going to know the difference. All right. Um, but that I needed to clarify that. So, um, and then he said, thank you much for that opinion. Any comments about that? All right, let's do Jeff Schrader asked, how does everyone determine the scope of their projects with an ignition or similar 
How much content are you putting into one project? Is it an entire plant? Or are you standing up separate projects for area line sell? Do you prefer one or few large projects or many small projects? All right, so this is a great question, Jeff. Um, here are the projects that you end up, I'm gonna answer how we do it. And what, it, what does it end up looking like for us? When I first, when we first install an ignition gateway, okay, we are going to make, um, we, we make a base project, okay? And that base project is inheritable, okay? That base project also contains the global scripts, okay? So it's gonna have all of our core stuff, okay? It's gonna have um, global scripts, um, and it's gonna have um, global templates, okay? Then what we're gonna do is we, the, almost always, we have a enterprise MES project, which inherits from base, okay? And that enterprise MES project is gonna be for everyone. So this is the, the whole, you know, you know, the biggest project we've ever built had 11 million tags and had 2,000 concurrent users and 2 million daily alarms. You can build that all day long in in one system. You can do that. I mean, you got to make sure you got to make sure you build the system right. You that you architect it correctly, but you can build massive systems. Okay, so this enterprise MES project is what we refer to as homogenous. This is our homogenous development, and it means um, the same for every consumer. So if every production line I go to, every uh, area I look at, every supervisor's office I go and look at, if I want to look at manufacturing execution, I'm looking, I'm, I'm looking at the same project everyone else is looking at, okay? Um, I, I'm looking at the same um, project everyone else is looking at, okay? We also do what is known as heterogeneous development. So this might be um, area or line level SCADA, okay? This, this will also inherit from the base project, okay? It's gonna inherit from the base project, but it is heterogeneous. I may have many of these line level SCADA systems, many of them, or I may have one, that, but generally it's many. But it's heterogeneous, and what it means, heterogeneous means it is unique, it is unique to area or line, okay? It's it's standard SCADA functionality, supervisor control data acquisition, but it's unique to an area or line. How do we get from the homogenous project to the heterogeneous project? And the answer is we retarget to heterogeneous when we need that capability. And we retarget back to homogenous when we need that capability. All right. And then the last type of project is all other. Okay. And these are your standalone capabilities. Here's some good examples dashboards. Very, very common 
to build multiple dashboard projects, okay, that I'm going to retarget to, or I may launch on an overhead screen. Those are all going to stand alone. Um, maintenance personnel, you know, maintenance, troubleshooting screens. Okay. So that is, I'm not providing any capability to anyone other than say somebody who's responsible for keeping the plant running. Okay. I may, I may, you know, when I, back in the day when I was an electrician or, or a technician, I, there may have been a trouble area, a, you know, a, a motor that keeps tripping out, or there may be a, a, a conveyor that's got a, you know, a, a, you know, a mouse inside the cabinet. We don't know why it is, you know, that it keeps shutting down. I may build a quick troubleshooting screen that's just going to give me the data points I need so that I can diagnose whatever that issue is and nuke it later. Okay. But what, but Jeff, to answer your question, the, um, this is this, these first three steps are the core steps that we do to develop projects. We start with a base project that's inheritable. We create an enterprise MES project that inherits from the base and it, and it's enterprise that applies everywhere. And then we move to area or line level SCADA, which we may have many of, you may have 20 of them, 30 of them. One of the things that we talk with our clients about all the time is that when you get ignition, ignition is not a SCADA platform. I've been saying to Steve Heckman and the folks at inductive automation, stop marketing it that way. It's a platform for solving problems. And after we leave, after we leave and the customer has all this stuff in red and we come back, say, two years later, there's going to be 10 times as many things in yellow as there will be stuff in red. You're going to end up, your customer is going to have, or you, your organization will have, you know, it'll be a 20 to one ratio, standalone capabilities that are in, in separate projects. But how do we design? The, I think the question Jeff's asking is this stuff in red. How do we do it? And the answer is just like this. Hopefully that answers Jeff's question. How do you mean by retarget the project? Um, so there's a mechanism to, to change between projects in the runtime in, in ignition. So I can go from, and let's say I'm using vision for my visualization. I can use a system call to retarget from one project to another. Uh, Matthew Kendall, is ignition licensing based on a project? Oh, God, no. And part of the reason ignition was widely adopted was Steve Heckman, who was originally an integrator, he hated all the other companies. He created unlimited, unlimited tags, unlimited clients, you know, uh, unlimited projects. It's their pricings by server. So for each ignition gateway, I have a license. Okay. Yep. Any other questions there? Hopefully that answered. I don't know if Jeff's on here, but hopefully that answered his question. Um, all right. Matt Paris, regarding the video that I just showed you, I haven't read this question yet. So uh, regarding the MQTT part two video, is this understanding correct? Number one, base data model support. All OPC UA servers support the base data model. This is equivalent to the spark plug base data model of end data and protobuf encoding. OPC UA and spark plug are equivalent here. Yes, mostly. Yep, absolutely. Uh, Matt, Matt Kendall, tats off the same. Yes, tats off the same. Unlimited. So at its core, they have it's um, it is unlimited, unlimited by server. They call it a T server. But so, wait, but they have both ignition and tats off. 
have lower licensing where I could buy like say one that only has one client or yeah, but, but only frameworks has canary unlimited on embedded into the platform. Well, so like it, a true it, historian and built into the platform. Right. And it's free and it, and, and it's, and it's included on the with, framework uh, with up to 500 tags mm -hmm. for, with no additional cost. Uh, no must. Oh. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, Jeff Schrader, no, you don't have to commit to getting your base project right. And by right, I mean, correct. I think is what you're saying. Um, how long did it take us to settle on the base project design for other projects to inherit them? Yeah, if you look at our base project, it's basically the exact same base project we've been using since 2013 with maybe a couple of new um, data types and a couple of new templates. But as you update your base project, you can push it to all the inherited projects. So you, that, I mean, that's part of what enterprise administration is for. But yeah, you can, through the inherited projects, you can make changes to your base project and push. Yes, it's 500 tags and only the historian, not the other tools, not Axiom, not any of that stuff, right? For free, they included in the Tatsoft. And then you can add the Canary licensing if you need Axiom or if you need to go above 500 tags. So it's not something you're regularly revising. Correct, Jeff. We're not, I wouldn't say, we're probably doing a new release of our base project once per year at most. Um. All right, let me, I'll finish uh, Matt's question. Base data model support. So number one is, um, yes, basically you got that right, Matt. Number one is basically correct. They're with some nuances. Number two, data model discovery. OPC UA server does not, does advertise what companion specs it includes in its namespace using the array. Yep, NS equals zero. So namespace equals zero, I equals 2255. Um, there is a high likelihood that the companion spec includes a custom structure that will not be understood unless the client also has the companion spec data model. The answer is correct, like 99%, 99% likelihood. Sparkplug templates are simply structures created from the base Sparkplug data types. The device implementing the template advertises the structure with its birth certificate because the structure is simply comprised of the base data types. Every Sparkplug client will be able to represent the structure without prior knowledge. Um, all right. The, yeah, that's correct with one additional, um, uh, one addition. So let's say I've got this. Enterprise site, you know, this RSA. line, right, sell. When I, let's say that I publish, um, let's say I'm publishing this via Sparkplug B. I can, um, I can say in my Sparkplug B payload that this line is a template, okay? So I can say that that's a template. And if I say that this is a template, anything underneath this is treated as a parameter of our user-defined data type. So it becomes an element or a parameter of a user-defined data type. So yes, you're correct in that Sparkplug templates are simply structures created from the base Sparkplug data types. That is 
the data types that Sparkplug is allowed to decipher, type equals whatever, right? But I, I, Sparkplug gives you the ability to simply flag and say, this thing and everything below this is a template uh, or a user-defined data type, right? It gives us the ability to do that. So what's able, what I'm able to do is basically take a namespace, flag all the things that are data types, user-defined types, publish that to the broker, and anything that consumes it can consume it as a type. So when I, when I visualize it on my other client side, I can see that as a type and not a folder, right? Um, and because of that, because of that, we can treat it as a template instead of just a hierarchy. So Sparkplug beats OPC UA here, absolutely 100%. There's no doubt about it. Number three, making use of the data model. The application receiving a data model must understand the data model to do anything useful with it. This is the case with both OPC UA and Sparkplug. Absolutely. I can take a Sparkplug payload and send it to a broker that is not a Sparkplug broker. The broker is not, you know, just like Arlen Nipper said last Saturday, it, the broker is basically blind to specification. It doesn't know whether these payloads are Sparkplug payloads or not. It doesn't know that. That doesn't mean we're not going to see brokers that don't have clients built in that can decipher Sparkplug B payloads. Don't get me wrong. We are absolutely going to see that. Um, but it is important. The thing that's consuming that payload type needs to be able to decipher it or parse it. Yes. And though, and OPC UA and Sparkplug are exactly the same there. Same thing with the template. So if I say that this is, if this is a, a template or a model, therefore, if I, every time I see that model use this faceplate, right, that'd be a good example. Every time I see this template use this faceplate, I have to first be able to decipher, I have to be able to, to parse the payload to determine that's a template, which means I got to be able to parse Sparkplug B. Great question. Aristotelis, Tennessee. Oh, let me make sure. Is ignition licensing based on modules? It's based on modules if you do a la carte. Uh, hope one day PLC and SCADA will be more friendly to all web standards. I feel like automation world is always five years behind the current web state. I'd argue it's like 10 to 15 years, but yes, good point, Dolly. Baselight, thank you, uh, Dwayne, for answering his question. Uh, Andreas Hein, uh, Dolly Automation needs LTS for their product, so it's kind of normal, sadly. Uh, JV, what is the winning formula for cybersecurity and legacy OS systems, etc.? Some split or double their control DCS and sensor diagnostic systems. Ooh, that's a that's not a question we answer in a live Q and A. That's a much more comprehensive discussion. No, hold on. Uh, all right, uh, Aristotle's TN. Hello, is there another system that works as a UNS besides Hybyte? I was looking for a hub that had more connectivity interface like OData, SAP 4HANA, OPC Classic. Um, yeah, so... We get this um, question all the time. Yeah, so, the, I mean, here are the most common, right? So Ignition, um, Factory Studio, WinCCOA, um, Highbyte. Highbyte's really focused on being a UNS. Um EMQX is almost certainly going to be able to serve as your, um, you know, later on will be able to, I mean, there's no question that EMQX is going to be able to decipher the payload types. Um, so that'll be able to be your, your unified namespace, um, HiveMQ, um, uh, Chariot SCADA, which is the, the, uh, um, Cirrus Link broker, 
I mean, that's just a handful of examples. Oh, you know, IOHub will be. IOHub will be able to serve. Man, if you look at what Easy Automate or um, Easy VPN, those guys, what those guys are doing is uh, it's pretty crazy. The IOHub, actually, sorry, I spelled this wrong. The IOHub is an IoT platform. I mean, it's pretty sick. Docker containers for all sorts of different industrial standards and protocols. Yeah, uh, Richard Blanchett. Um, okay, so to answer your question, he's asking the question, the the SESME smart manufacturing something. I can't remember oh, what it stands they're for. They're going to be adopting Sparkplug. Yes. Right? So the answer is SESME's smart manufacturing cloud IoT protocol. Richard uh, Blanchett, what does the SMIP stand for again? It's smart manufacturing something. Innovation. Something. Innovation platform, right? There you go. Right. Um, it will oh. it will be able to serve as a unified namespace. In here, in one of the really cool things that I'm looking forward to is Sesme. Factory is, Plus. I mean, right. Well, Factory Plus is a, another whole other separate uh, video we should shoot. But what I'm looking for with with looking forward with the Sesme is if um, Sesme Sesme is adopting Sparkplug B and um, they already have MQTT support, but now they'll be able to support Sparkplug B. And the beauty will be taking a profile that run a, a Sesame profile, which develop gets developed by the community. So profile equals template equals data model equals user defined data type. They're all the same thing. Everyone's just using different words for it, um, but they're all the same thing in terms of practice. You'll be able to take a Sesame profile, like maybe a tank profile or a um, a rig profile or a, go a plating line profile or a plating cell profile. And you'll be able to package that as a Sparkplug B template and transmit it into their, their platform, innovation platform. Thank you, Richard. Yes. So yes, says me. Let's go ahead and give those guys credit where credit is due. I, I just think that adoption is, is, too, is moving too slow at, at says me. And I, um, I'm not sure why, you know, um, you know, they got to deal with political stuff. They're still really tight with the, yeah, Factory Plus. Yes, Henning. We will do Factory Plus. Um, but th those are just a couple of the examples. Um, all right. Habib in SCADA. All right. So what Habib is describing here is a self-aware system. So he can, says... Can you make it a, a little bigger? Um, yeah. So what Habib is describing here is a self-aware system, which we talk about all the time. So I'm thinking of a system like this. When I create a tag for a skater or a PLC application on any development platform, this development platform, for example, TIA portal, SciTech SCADA, connects to a namespace database service, not database service, get rid of, get that out of your, your mind, but yes, um, and checks the name of the tag. If it's unique, let me create it or let me use the built-ins available in the namespace. Is there such a system? This is what we do all the time. We already do this. Um, this is called self building self-aware systems. Okay. Uh, if yes, th are there any published standards for the connection between these applications? The answer is no, but we use spark plug B as the standard to do it. Okay. Um, is and, your and says me and says me is developing the exact same thing at, at the exact same time. Concurrently, these applications, these self-aware connections, right? If I, plug a right now the way we do it is if i add that tag or that that type in my plc and i transmit it into my unified namespace i can check to see does that type exist 
does that tag exist? If it, if it, if the type exists, create a new instance of it with that name. If the tag doesn't exist, create a new tag with its name. And now it's, it's basically undefined. And now our visualization application can monitor for that, consume it and, and update visuals can update just based on what exists in the namespace. Yes. We do this all the time. Um, Matt Paris in the Discord server talks about it. I mean, it's part of, I think, why he was attracted to Sparkplug B. But we, when we refer to self-aware systems, that's exactly what we're talking about. Uh, w. Werner. Hey, PLC developers. Anyone here willing to share some insights? I'm very curious about typical challenges you face day to day, especially when developing systems of multiple interacting parties. All right. So l- let me go back here. Dolly asked the question. Do you have experience with PLC 4X? Okay. The answer is yes. Um, For those of you that don't know what PLC 4X is, think of it as as an MQTT broker for, but instead of using an MQTT broker for the transport layer, you're using web service. So PLC 4X, you know, PLC 4X is, native protocols to talk to stuff out on the edge. And then you basically use web service in the middle for all the clients to inter operate with one another. Um, Why would you want to do that? <clears throat> you would wanted to do that if MQTT Sparkplug B didn't exist. Yeah, it's going to say if we have I mean, Spark- well, sort of question, if we, yeah. because we have Sparkplug, why would you want to do that? It's slick. It's, it, I, I love the concept and everything. I'm not, I'm not low on it. And I can see scenarios where that might, you know, we want to you on it, but you're not high on it. <laughs> right. I, I might want it for, um, I, I might want to use PLC 4X for a unified namespace, assuming I have a client that can parse the namespace, but yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I am, I dig, I, I dig the concept of PLC for next, but because MQTT with Sparkplug B exists and adoption is just exploding, I'm not sure I see where PLC 4X is going to fit with it, the exception, hold on, with the exception of business intelligence. So if PLC 4X is able to adopt, if they adopt Sparkplug B and they use an MQTT connector to consume from an MQTT topic namespace, and then we can expose that topic namespace via PLC 4X web services, ooh. then you could use it as your business connector into your business intelligence systems. That's when I look at it, that's what I think. I'm think, oh, they've they've already missed the boat. They've missed the boat on, you know, pulling data from equipment and right. it, but you know, because Sparkplug B is so far ahead of the curve, there's no way they're not gonna be able to catch up. But it's very interesting technology. It's basically MQTT, but with web service. So you still got to do posts and get and you know all that shit. Which is deterministic, by the way. Right, and it's manual point-to-point yeah, integration. Point-to-point, deterministic. So, or let me ask Werner. But I, I do like PLC4X. I do. Uh, if you give an over, decide to say, if you give an overview on using ThingBoard and ElasticStack and both advantages and disadvantages in terms of scalability, yeah, we'll have to shoot that as a separate video. That's a 15-minute answer. <laughs> um, how would you, Mark Ritchie, how would you fold in an enterprise application like Maximo into the UNS, PLC publishes, run hours, subscribes. Yep. Um, all right. Good. Great question here. So, um, Mark, the way that we integrate with Maximo is almost always through the ERP system. So it de- 
to answer, I can't give you the definitive answer, but let me say this. In most cases, in most of the clients that we talk to who's using Maximo for EAM, CMMS, they are there generally by the time our, we get there, they've already got some plan to unify the master data models in Maximo and in the ERP. Okay, so that is how do they structure the data of the business? Maximo does the same thing. They they literally they have a master data model in the back back end, which is basically the structure of your business with the edge the end nodes being your assets. So the first thing we have to do since ERP really drives the master data model of the business. Okay, that is if I want to know how a business is structured, the best place to go is the ERP system and look at the master data model. Right, where are the work centers? Which assets are grouped into which work centers? All that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, what, what, you know, the bill of materials for each of the product codes, all that jazz. I'm going to get that in ERP. And, you know, hopefully I'm getting more technical than I generally get because people have been asking me to get more technical in here. So hopefully I'm not glazing people's eyeballs over. Um, I, I would, I, the first place I'm going to go is the ERP for the master data model. If I'm using an EAM or a CMMS to, to, you know, um, manage my assets. Okay. So, those assets also live in the ERP, but they're managed somewhere else. First thing I got to do is unify them together. Okay, I, I got to take the master data model in the EAM and I got to normalize it or unify it with the master data model in the ERP. The way that we generally get the information from Maximo is we we retrieve, if, if Maximo is sending back asset information, specifically work order stuff into the ERP, we'll get it there. But what we generally do is get the master data model from the ERP and then we will hit the Maximo backend primarily through SQL to retrieve any of the EAM or CMMS data that we care about. Hopefully that works. We actually talk about that in Mastermind. Uh, right. So yeah, we talk about that in, in Mastermind. And, and the most common CMMS EAM integration that we do is in for EAM. They and have CMMS the is a computerized maintenance management system. Right. And, the and then is an enterprise, enterprise asset. asset management. And the truth is, EAM contains, they're basically the same thing. EAM has other functions, right? Um, depreciation, appreci uh, depreciation or appreciation of assets, that kind of stuff is, there are some financial elements you, that are- What do you think about, um, what do you think about like creating your own CMMS in, in Ignition? We've, we've like done it, we've done it a couple of times, but you know, in we've we the most common one. If a client doesn't have a CMMS, we we almost always recommend Infor, um, because we've already built the hooks in Ignition and Factory Studio to hit Infor's backend, right? Um, so, but yeah, building a CMMS is not hard. I mean, it's it it's you could build everything inside of Ignition if you wanted to, or inside Factory Studio. Yeah, that's what Amon okay. is is doing for his Ignition thing. Is the CMMS. The problem you run into, here's the problem you run into. A lot of people are like, you know, hey, I can make a bunch of money doing this. I'll build, I'll build like a one-stop shop enterprise solution inside of Ignition or in Factory Studio or in WinCCOA or whatever. Or I'll the, just the you know, MES solution. Yeah. And then I'll try and then I'll just sell it. Customer, 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 customer. Right. And what they end up with is that's really just like a starter kit. That's all it really is. And and they, I think they initially envision I'm going to sell it over and over and over again to my customers, but then they 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 miss the point that every customer has edge cases. 
They have manufacturers, while at a 10,000 foot view, all do the same thing. At a, at a 1,000 and 100 foot view, do lots of different things. And you're and when if you're going to build a solution inside of Ignition that you're going to sell to many people and try to maintain, you have to have a mechanism to handle those edge cases. What I showed you how to structure projects up here based on Jeff Schrader's question, that's a damn good start. That's a damn good start to how you would want to achieve that, right? This is why you need an architect on your team. You got to have an architect. Um, all right. Um, th let me ask Werner, answer his question, and then... So, hey, PLC developers, anyone here willing to share some insights? I'm very curious about typical challenges you face day to day, especially when developing systems of multiple interacting parties. Say, for example, uh, any combination of robots, machines, intralogistics, and human operators. I realize this is a broad question, but I'm interested in whether we can spot any patterns. I hope to be able to drill down from there. This is a great question. Furthermore, coming from an application development background myself, I haven't really understood how people manage the development process in this context. They don't. It's all dependent upon the person who's building the, writing the PLC program in, in general. Um, what approaches and tools do you use for version control, collaboration, deployments, monitor, and logging, especially for software that runs on the edge on PLCs, machine gateways, and HMIs? Grateful for any experience pointers you'd like to share. Thanks. So I'm going to start with the second paragraph first. So furthermore, coming from an app development background myself, I haven't really understood how people manage the development process in this context. What approaches do you use for version control, collaboration, deployments? All right. The, the answer is they don't do version control in general. Most people don't, okay? You, mo they should, and, and the, the, best, the best type of version control is that you're you're most likely going to see. And this doesn't mean that there aren't PLC programmers out there who approach their job like a software developer. But 99.9% .9 of them don't, okay? So what they'll do is at the beginning of the day, they'll take a backup of the ACD file. Say they're writing it in control logics. They'll take a, a backup of the ACD file and they'll create a file share and they'll go today's date, 0800, and drop the file in there. Uh then at the end of the day or say at lunch, they'll take a backup, right? I mean, they literally manually version control. Um, here's why, especially on the Rockwell side, the way that Rockwell is built, the ACD file, like the dot ACD file, all that really is, is like a zip file. And it's a, and when, and when you open up control logics, you are actually opening up multiple files, the backend uh, database file, and then, and then the front end context the actual project itself that references that backend stuff. When you add tags, the backend file updates. If you use the tags, the front end updates, right? You version controlling there outside of using like a Rockwell. So Rockwell calls it a, is it Asset Center? I think it's called Asset Center. Um, they have a tool called, it, Rockwell changes their names all the time, but it, they you can use Asset Center for version controlling your PLC code, but that only works for Rockwell PLC code, right? So in general, developers, uh, PLC programmers, don't really worry about version control. And they don't really worry about monitoring which program they got running on which PLC. Let's say they got five of the same asset. They literally check it manually. What they'll do is they'll take the programs and just do diffs against them. And, oh, I need to update with that. You know, that happens all the time. Okay. The way it should work long term, and the best way to do this, is use, you know, um, 
you know, IEC 61131, like you or Codasys, you know, if you use a standard programming language, then using something like Git is a much easier, um, you know, it's a lot easier to do that because your code is really raw text that's run inside of an application, right? So, uh, but you just don't see a lot of that. You just don't, <coughs> especially in the States where Rockwell's got 75, um, you know, 75% of the, the um, market. I do want to I do want to make a quick shout out to copia.io because to, it's kind of an answer to his question. They aren't like as um, <clears throat> I know Tesla was using copia for their uh, version control and management when they were spinning up the the you know their launch spinning up their most recent factory going into full production instead of having like 45 developers managing code and versions on each of their PLCs across their facility they were able to reduce that number to 15. So like a third, the amount of workers were able to do the same task by leveraging Git, which is really copia.io is like Git for PLC programmers. And and here's one of the biggest problems we have. Here's the biggest challenge, the biggest lift, the, the hurdle you got to jump. If you give the same functional specification and sequence of operation to 10 different PLC programmers, you are going to get 10 completely different programs that do exactly the same thing, okay? Even if you give them a tag naming standard, even if you give them a programming standard, you're still going to get 10 completely different programs, okay? You just will. It's a function of the business. It's a, fu it's a function of how you create PLC programmers. I don't know if Jeff Rankinen's on here with his class, but he, you, the best case scenario, you don't, you don't, teach people to become a PLC programmer in college. You introduce them to PLC programming. They learn how to become PLC programmers at their first job, the first mm -hmm. integrator they work for, right? The first machine builder they work for. And how they program is a function of who taught them. Okay, it's very tribal in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, Jeff is on with his class today. Oh, hey, Jeff, ranking it. And, and, you know, and here's why. You can't spend three semesters or four semesters teaching people to write PLC programs, teaching them the standards. You can't do that. You, you learn it on the job. It's really on the job training. And, and the, and the people, the best PLC programmers in the world are the ones who a have the experience. They've written many different programs for many different processes in many different languages and B they're the ones who can draw dotted lines between different concepts. So I can get introduced to PLC programming I have, I'm a logical thinker. I'm an organized thinker. I'm a planner, and I can I can connect dotted lines to the to my output. That's right. Educations for learning, employments for training. Outstanding, Schrader. Um, and let me go back to this. Um, hey, PLC developers, anyone here willing? I'm very curious about typical challenges you face day to day, especially when developing systems of multiple interacting parties. Say a uh, combination of robots. Uh, blah, blah, blah. I realize this is a broad question, but I'm interested in whether we can spot any patterns. I hope to be able to drill down here. And I'd love for the community to answer this as well. But let me say this. The number one challenge, the number one challenge that I see PLC programmers facing, I just literally just had a call this morning, okay, with a, another integrator. So it was us, our customer, and another integrator. And that other integrator is a like pure industry 3.0. They openly admit it. You know, hey, we're a machine builder. We don't worry about data. We don't worry about where that data is going. Okay. The biggest challenge, one of the biggest challenges that they face is when they're writing their PLC programs, 
they do not know where their program, where the process that they're building fits into the business, right? And there was there was one glaring problem with the pro the program they were writing, which was basically they had you know they basically are writing you know a like uh, like a thirteen station ro- automated robotic um, uh, line where um, they basically are assembling these modules and they're testing them, right? That's what they're doing. The business groups those modules into groups of three, okay? But they built the line to process each module one at a time, which they have to do. A robot can only pick up one module at a time. They, but the business sees them as a group of three. That the PLC programmer was not aware in any way, shape, or form that the business groups modules into groups of three. These three belong together, okay? And if one of them is no good, then we have to scrap we have to uh, we have to move all three of them offline the biggest challenge that business that plc programmers have is they have no idea where their program fits in the business so they don't know generally what they can consume from the business and number 2 they have no idea what to do with the data they generate who cares about the data what data do they want they don't know that that's the biggest challenge plc programmers face without without exception um, in in today's in today's market um, so anyway, hopefully that that helped. Let me uh, stop sharing here. Let me go and see if there are any other. Um, and, and to get those multiple parties to interact well, I mean, you that only comes out through an iterative development cycle where you're being agile. I mean, you can't expect you to hit start and everything works perfectly on day one, right? Those different robots and the different business system integrations and yep those things are coming together and that's why you need an architect, but well, um, and here, here's the last point and here's the last point for PLC programmers, right? Controls is always the last thing you deploy. Well, it's not business intelligence is the last thing you deploy, but in not everyone does business intelligence. Controls is the last thing you deploy. And by the time it's you're it's time to do the controls. I'm doing the automation. I'm going to do the runoff. I'm doing IO checks and, you know, I'm doing FAT on site and then doing SAT. By the time I get started, I'm already late. They're already a month behind schedule, two months behind schedule, and they expected you to be done two weeks ago. And so PLC programmers oftentimes don't have time to do it right. They're oftentimes not given the time to do it right. And that's why you see so many shortcuts taken um, when they're de- developing their programs. So um, that was right, a good any- screen today. Yeah. Any any other questions that I can answer before we drop off? Appreciate everybody. Hopefully this was valuable. I, I did get way more technical than I normally do. I'm I'm always afraid that, you know, it's it that's only I'm only speaking to three or four people when I do that. Bring your MQTT related questions to next week's uh, company spotlight with EMQX. And thank you again, EMQX, for sponsoring all of our content, all of our four videos that we produced in the month of um in August, right? Yeah, August. This is, and then uh, look forward to the videos coming out in September, sponsored by EasyVPN. Hey, so, real quick, before you guys drop, can you tell me whether this was too technical? Like J- Jacob Loeffler, Andreas Hein, where when you say one hundred percent, or you say thank you for understanding that, are you saying that? Yeah, in many ways, I'm talking over. I'm talking over a broader audience's. Um, Am I talking over people's heads? 
or the broader audience's heads. I know there are people here who understand exactly what I'm talking about, but am I talking over the broader audiences? Uh, and while you guys are waiting, I'll let me. We had a good question come in from uh, IT Walker. What guys? What do you guys use for OT cybersecurity? Dio, Tossybox, firewall. We try. Well, generally, there's always a firewall there. Diodes are kind of going out of fashion. Tossybox is definitely the top solution for us. Um, you know, Tossybox is you know world class VPN. I mean, and and um, but we also use technology to create create security by part of the reason we use MQTT is because we don't have to open, we don't have to create any vulnerabilities, right? We don't have to open any inbound ports. Andreas, hundred percent PLC programmers don't get the time to get it right. Yes. Okay. Awesome. All right, everyone. I appreciate you guys watching. We'll see you next week. Uh, yes. Seiko Mia. So, uh, Reykjavik, uh, you know, people will ask me, Walker, what's the difference between Seiko Mia and Tossy box? Um, the answer is they're both quality VPNs um, implemented differently. That's it. We just we just prefer Tossybox, but SQLMe is a great it's a great solution. Um, just join live. Uh, thank you for understanding the PLC. The tech talk is perfect. Awesome. Thank you, everyone. Uh, we'll see you next week. See you guys.